0: hi sunshine i'm natasha your host for the shine online podcast and the founder of soul studio In this conversational podcast, I interview the brightest entrepreneurs I know with the goal of empowering you to do business in a way that feels real to you. These conversations will bring you no-fluff advice, honest discussions, and actionable strategies to help you shine online. There are so many bright brands in the online world, but there's always room for one more. Let's shine together. Today's episode is actually brought to you by my courses that are getting the brightest updates yet, and they're really going to help you show up consistently and grow your brand on Instagram. So they're opening for enrollment super, super soon, and they're really going to teach you how to create engaging content, become an industry expert on Instagram, and truly grow your brand for the best results. So the updates are going to rename and revamp them as Instagram with impact, which is all about my organic growth strategies for growing on Instagram and showing up on Instagram. That's really in a fun and profitable way. And then I have my video course, Shine on Instagram Video. So it's going to break down the four types of Instagram videos and how you can effortlessly create videos in your strategy to really build a real relationship with your audience. So if you want to be the first to know when these courses drop, be sure to join the waitlist, which is linked in the show notes. Now let's get into today's episode. Today, I have a fellow yellow loving friend with me, Jess Ekstrom. Thanks so much for being on the show. I feel like we are the yellow girls. We literally are.
1: That's who we are. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here.
0: Just for a background, everyone, we did a clubhouse room with Tiffany who has been on this podcast of four. And you all know, we literally all have yellow on our profiles. So it was just like a whole yellow vibe, which I love.
1: Yeah. People were like, um, did you guys find each other because <laughs> you were yellow? We we're just like, sure. Let's, yeah, let's go with that. I know. Cause then would
0: it wouldn't <laughs> be funny if we actually coordinated like, okay, guys go into Canva, change <laughs> your background. Like we're being Honestly, strategic. would not hate it. I right. like, I I'm here for it. So fun. Well, I want to dive right into your story because I don't even know if you know this, but I learned about you from the Gold Digger podcast, actually. So, oh no way! I always yeah. thought that you and I connected because of Quinn Tempest. That's kind of how we connected even deeper. But like, I remember right after the episode with Jenna, I like bought a headband and I was like, oh, "Jess is you're awesome! So sweet. <laughs> Thank you." Okay, so yeah. we go way,
1: way back further. Way, than I Yes,
0: it. yeah, I know you from way back. We connected even deeper, kind of last year, pretty much. So I'd love yeah. to kind of just debrief us on the long story long of like starting Headbands of Hope and all the pivots and and changes and new businesses you've started
1: since? Yeah, absolutely. So I started Headbands of Hope out of my dorm room in college, Um, really as scrappy as they come. I was interning for the Make-A-Wish Foundation and was seeing a lot of kids that were losing their hair to chemotherapy and they'd be offered wigs or hats. And a lot of them wanted to wear headbands. I would see so many of them wearing headbands and I just thought it was such a cool gesture of confidence that they didn't want to hide what they were going through. They wanted to embrace it and accessorize. And so I kind of just went onto Google and I was like, are there companies out there giving headbands to kids with cancer? Like, I think that was like my exact search. I say that I got my business degree from Google that shit university, but, and then When I realized that that was like a connection that hadn't really been made yet, I call it like the dumbest, smartest moment of my life because there wasn't like the clouds parted and like, you know, birds started chirping and I was like, aha, you know, it was like, oh, maybe I could create something that gives headbands to kids with illnesses. And so I started working on a company called Headbands of Hope for every headband sold, one is given to a child with cancer. And it's kind of serendipitous. Like a few weeks prior, Blake, the founder of Tom Shoes, had spoken at my school about this like one-for-one model that he had started and how he wants other brands and companies to have this like for-purpose mission of, Mm -hmm. you know, donating product. And so I was like, oh, that's what I'll do. You know, just like Blake, one-for-one for every headband sold, one is donated to a child with an illness. Rocky beginnings. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew that I cared enough to figure it out, if that makes sense. It wasn't like I had this set game plan. I mean, I literally was recruiting like graphic design students to build my logo and like paid them in Chipotle Burritos. This was like pre Canva days (laughs) where Photoshop seemed like this like mountain I did not want to climb. And then little by little, we caught our groove. And this is I'm telling the story in a way that I hate when people tell stories. I'm like, one day I had this idea, and the next day, but just for the sake of time, we can get back into it. But things started to come together. And then, about like five or six years into the business, I kind of started realizing that like my story of starting Headbands of Hope is like a mission in itself that could help people. The idea that you don't have to feel like you're qualified the idea that you can start before you're ready, the idea that like one person can make a difference by doing something so small, like a headband. And all of this started kind of brewing into this. um, I wasn't sure what it was yet, but I just knew that the manner in which I did this company could help people. And this was really before the company was successful. Like we were just kind of getting our footing And so I started doing speaking engagements, just like literally in my old teacher's classrooms. And then that kind of grew into a speaking career at colleges and universities, which then grew into more of like a corporate speaking career at like conventions and and conferences and companies which then led to a book deal with HarperCollins, which then sparked this idea that like writing gave me a lot of clarity. And so my newest venture is Bright Pages, which is a guided online journal for doers and creators. It's funny, at the time, it feels like a really squiggly line. And then when you look back, you see how each thing connected to the next. <laughs> right. And I think that's like what I'm curious about is I think that
0: a lot of times we can plan and and do a business plan and have all these goals of what we want to achieve long-term. But I think the most impactful next steps or pivots or moves are the ones that really come so naturally. And that seems like that's really very true to your journey.
1: Yeah. And that's honestly why I'm not a fan of like the five-year plan because I think that when we live like there's only one option, then everything will feel like we didn't get it. You can have like goals and dreams and a mission and a North Star without being attached to outcomes. And so I think it's like not spoken a lot, but with entrepreneurs to know that you're going to make moves in the moment. And yeah, you can plan a little bit ahead, but also understand that there are like a ton of winning scenarios that you don't even know what they are. Right. And I think that that has been a big part of my mental health the past couple of years cuz I I gripped things too tightly. I gripped singular outcomes too firmly like if I'm going to write a book then it has to be a New York Times bestseller or if I'm going to start a company I have to get on the Forbes 30 under 30 list or and so my success felt so Hit or miss, win or lose. And then I realized now looking back doing this for, you know, nine years that I had no idea what was in store for me. And that was probably the best thing for me was the things that I didn't even know existed.
0: So good. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, we have similar journeys in terms of like we started our businesses in college and like, even looking back, I was so oblivious to everything. But I think that being so naive to like the journey that you're on and what can pop up is really freeing in a lot of ways. Cause I do think that there definitely is this planning goal setting culture around entrepreneurship. And I think that that can be really helpful for some things, but I think taking the pressure out of once I do this, I'm successful. Or once I do this, I'm hitting off this milestone versus being like, by just following the journey, like this is fulfilling in itself, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think that Especially now uh, with social media, and like there are so many amazing parts of social media. Uh, and I know that's literally how you and me have like built our entire brand. But I think one of the parts of it that we have to be careful about is just the comparison traps that are so easy to fall into and determining your own success based on someone else's, which is should not be the case but oftentimes it so is like every thought that we have about ourselves is by comparison to someone else like if you wrote a book in a closed room and that was it maybe you would think like oh my god this is an amazing book but the moment you flip on like some sort of social media app and you see someone that's like oh on shelves at target like can't keep them in stock then you're like my book sucks which is is not the case. And so I think, you know, steering away from the five-year plan, but understanding like what's the common thread in everything that I do, that should be the thing that we aim and strive for is more of a North Star mentality and not a destination mindset. Because, you know, people don't ever arrive at a a North Star. They just use it for guidance. Mm -hmm. So You know, what is the thing that I really want to like leave my mark on and what's that legacy? And that's something, you know, especially in 2020 with everything that went down and Black Lives Matter and all of the kind of politics that we're living in, it really amplifies this idea of what is all of this leading to? Everything that I do or I create, what brick is it laying? What fruit is it growing? And if it's just for a certain follower count or whatever it is, like that, you're not gonna ever really feel that. And that's definitely not gonna outlast you. So I try to think about my projects and my work in like terms of almost like a third-year plan. And instead of a five-year plan, which I know sounds ridiculous, (laughs) but there was actually, I think it's in Japan where they don't do New Year's resolutions. They do hundred year resolutions, which is like setting goals and systems and life, you know, stuff in place that will outlast you. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about what you do in your lifetime. It's like the bricks that you lay for others, which is why I'm so passionate about like building courses and content for women to be seen and valued as experts, because I might not be able to solve that in my lifetime, but I can make a dent in that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I've been coming from the past couple of years, because I definitely got sucked up in the singular outcomes for a while.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there's so much goodness there of just really shifting how you show up in your business and how you create and what those real goals are that might not be something you can visually see, but something that you can feel and the impact you can make. And I know we kind of like sped through your journey, but I'm really curious, like behind the scenes now, what does that look like with all the little sectors of your business and your brand and all that you do? Like, is there a team supporting you? Like, how do you balance your days between doing, you know, Bright Pages stuff versus Headbands of Hope stuff? Like how, what does your day look like now?
1: Yeah. <laughs> plus, plus living in a trailer most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to touch on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, a few years ago, made a shift out of Headbands of Hope where I'm no longer in the day-to-day, which was like a big, almost like more of a shift for me than it was for the business. And I realized we can have this kind of like founder syndrome where we think that we are like the only puppeteer keeping things afloat, which... You're doing your company and your business a disservice if it all revolves around you. And so you should be able to like remove yourself, I feel like sometimes from the product in order to best serve it. Because if it only solely like needs you, and, and for me, this is from, coming from a product based business, you know, not a service based business. But so that was a big move for me. And so we have a team now at Headbands of Hope of almost 10 people, which is crazy. I, I seriously sometimes can't believe it. And so I'm more involved in like the higher level strategy, brand positioning and things that are a little bit bigger vision. Then at Bright Pages, it's kind of like, you know, starting from from zero again, which on one hand was like really exciting. Like I love the blank canvas. I love starting from scratch The thing that I've been struggling with, and it's actually kind of funny because my team at Bright Pages, they're actually partners. So they've, you know, invested in the company and they all have had successful like exits or, you know, something like this is not their first rodeo, which is completely opposite from Headbands of Hope. Everyone at Headbands of Hope, like, was like my college roommate or like, you know, something that they just started from scratch and we were just growing along the way. Bright Pages is a totally different story because... Everyone that is in this team right now kind of like knows what winning feels like. And so it's good and bad because the good part of it is that they have proven systems, things, tactics that have worked that they can, you know, copy paste into here. The bad part of it is if we all like know what it feels like to live at a hundred, then going from zero to one or zero to two doesn't feel that big. And even though it should feel big, like any progress in a startup should be celebrated or any progress period. And so I think that the way that it's set up right now with Headbands of Hope and Bright Pages, like it's very different and there's pros and cons to both of them. So I've been having a little bit of a tough time, navigating just like the beginning of Bright Pages and working out the glitches and figuring out what's the messaging, you know, is it guided online journaling for doers or guided online journaling for creators? Is it both like, and uh, not getting too impatient or frustrated with myself because the reality is, is that it took me really eight years to find really significant traction in Headbands of Hope. Bright Pages, is that like, month two of being live. And so the amount of pressure that I'm putting on myself for this to be just like soaring is unrealistic comparing month two to year eight, but it's really hard. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'm sure. And I think That kind of going back to what I mentioned before of like when we both started our businesses, like we were so like oblivious to all the the ins and the outs and the hardships and everything. So now that you're like schooled on what it's like to really build a business, it almost like changes your expectations of yourself and this new project that you're working on, right?
1: Yeah. And it's kind of like a second time syndrome or something like, and I'm definitely not a Michael Phelps where I won a ton of gold medals, but when you've done something that you're like okay i did i did pretty well at that let me come back and do it again you know or it puts a different amount of pressure on it because all of a sudden there's you feel like there are like beatable med tricks that you have to hit or you know we didn't do that the first time or whatever it might be so i'm trying to play in the sandbox but even when you know what the sandcastle is supposed to look like it's harder to play if that makes right. sense totally
0: makes sense. And I, and I got me thinking about speaking too, because I know, you know, last year speaking really affected a lot of different people and it changed and shifted. It still changed and shifted and who knows if it'll ever go back to a norm or anything like that. So I'm kind of curious, like how did your speaking career really have to evolve to adapt to this new world that we're living in? And like, do you have any tips for that people that are maybe wanting to start speaking this year and make that pivot, add that to their business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, with speaking, you know, it's kind of funny like even though events aren't happening, like we need connection and inspiration now more than ever. And so the virtual event space over the past year has been incredible and virtual events are a lot easier to like start and host as well. We were even supposed to have like an in-person event here in Raleigh in March last year which was like worst time right when the pandemic was hitting. We were supposed to have 400 people show up in person. We ended up having 3500 people show up to the virtual event 1 month later. And so the reach of these virtual events can oftentimes be a lot greater than in person. So, with my students in Mic Drop Workshop, which is my online course for women to get paid speaking gigs, there wasn't a ton of things that they needed to change in the pitching process. Like, it is, there are still events going on and still gatherings that need to be had. They're just virtual. The difference was maybe in your delivery um, and getting comfortable sitting in front of a computer, getting comfortable not having people hearing the laugh at your jokes or like reading audience engagement, getting comfortable looking at the green dot instead of the screen. But I think that virtual events also really help with new speakers because it gives you a opportunity to kind of like play in the shallow end a little bit where you can test new material, you can kind of have post-it notes on your computer if you want, there's not like 400 people looking at you. Like, what are you going to say next? You know, you can have some resources that are there to help you. And so I say, pitch your heart out. That and that's the other thing is that you can do like three or four virtual events in one day, which I'm sure you have, Natasha. Yeah. Because you're not traveling around, it's less time as well. Yeah,
0: definitely. And I think that especially if people are wanting to add speaking onto their business. That almost virtual makes it a lot easier to get those people to those channels that you hang out, whether it's your email list, or I know you really love text or, you know, Clubhouse or Instagram, like wherever your people are, chances are if they're consuming you virtually, they can then connect with you afterwards, which I think is super beneficial And I know you mentioned paid speaking events. And I think that's one big thing that I feel like a lot of whether established speakers or new speakers are really struggling with is I feel like when it's virtual, it's like people feel like, and this is something I've struggled with too, that you can't charge the same. Premium or the same amount when versus you're not traveling and on a stage for these events. So, like, how have you navigated still being able to make income from these speaking events, but them being virtually? Like, have you found that there's a shift, anything different?
1: Yeah. So, I'm seeing events are paying around 30% less than in person events. And that's what is kind of like making up for the time and travel. But what's important for speakers to understand is that these events are not paying just for your time. They're paying for the value of your time. And so don't think of your speaker fee in terms like of an hourly rate. I charge the same amount whether I'm speaking for 15 minutes or an hour because it's the value that I'm delivering. It's not the time. Mm-hmm. So when you are quoting or like pitching yourself something that I think is helpful when you're talking to an event instead of saying do you have a speaker fee saying what is your speaker fee or sorry your speaker budget mm-hmm. because when you say like do you have one that's kind of inferring that it would be okay if you didn't but if you're like hey i don't speak for free what is your <laughs> what is your budget then it shows that you do another part of this too is identifying areas in your speaking business that could also provide value that aren't monetary because sometimes at the end of the day they just don't have it. Actually before I get to that, one more thing that a lot of speakers don't do that I think is could be really helpful is offering to partner with like a sponsor that would pay you. Mm. So for example, let's say they're like Natasha, I Really, really, really want you to speak at my event. We don't have a budget. Like, would you do it for free? You could ask them if there are any current sponsors that they already have or potential sponsors that you could do, like, a one on one with or an Instagram audit, or you give that sponsor a shout out on your page in exchange for sponsoring you to speak. Ooh. Because sponsors love to sponsor the actual speaker because mm-hmm. they get. More impressions, you know? Right. So, offering that is sometimes they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that would be great. If you have a book in in person events, I've offered that like the sponsor can sponsor to buy books and we put like a bookmark in there that's like a thank you from the sponsor. So, there are ways to get creative with it. Decide what areas are valuable to you and incorporate that into your quote. So, one of the big things with speaking is footage. Even virtual footage is helpful. Having footage of you speaking, can you ask them for footage? Can you ask them for photos? And can you ask them for a testimonial afterwards and three referrals to other potential events? Ooh. Those are like four biggies that if you can get those four things, sometimes the gig is worth your time even without pay. So just to just to recap, footage, photos testimonial, and three referrals. And I put it all in my contract. So they have to make those three referrals, BCC or CC, me and my manager, Michelle, within a week post event. So it's not like it would be really great if it's like, no, this is a part of my compensation is Mm -hmm. you spreading my name. Oh, that is so,
0: so good. I know one of my clients is actually a speaking coach, and that's one thing that she always recommends is always asking for referrals afterwards for new events. And I'm like, oh, I need to do that. And now I'm like, taking more notes. I'm like, oh, I need to make sure this is required for them to do that. So I think those tips are so good. And I'm sure there's other factors, maybe you pencil in as well, is like, um, depending on their budget or other ways that you can compensate you, like sometimes. Most of the time, not usually, but if you know that audience is like, Absolutely perfect for you, or you're wanting to give back to a certain nonprofit. Like, I feel like there's also ways that it kind of is that fulfillment part that you mentioned, where like if you're giving back and speaking to a nonprofit that doesn't have a budget, but that's like really in your values, then like that's also a way that you can go about speaking. So it's not so cut and dry about I need to always be making like a a paycheck from it. There could be other ways to benefit.
1: Yeah. In Mike Drop Workshop, we actually have a gig scorecard. So when you're like weighing, you rate all these different factors. Like, is it a credible name that I can put on my website? Is it a fun place to travel to? You know, is it a cause or a company that I care about? And when you can actually score all of these different things that go into a gig, you can determine like whether or not it's right for you. And the other thing that I think is like undervalued when it comes to speaking is teaming up with other speakers. Speaking is such a collaborative industry, but oftentimes it doesn't act like it. If someone books a speaker for their spring event, they're not going to book them again for that same event. They need someone new because their audience has already seen them. And so one of the ways that I was really able to grow my speaking business is by teaming up with other speakers who were similar enough to where our gigs could overlap, but different enough to where I provided like a different kind of value. And we would give ourselves... Commission of, like, let's say, you know, you, Natasha, spoke at some event and you were like, hey, you guys should bring Jess and they book me, you know, for $10,000 or whatever it is, then I would give you a 15% cut of that event that just booked me because of your introduction. Mm. And so, kind of creating these like pods and in Mike Drop Workshop, we call them speaker sisters where you can refer each other is another really great, seamless way. And after every single gig, I always ask. At the same time when I ask for the testimonial, I also ask when and if they're looking for other speakers so I can tee up more women to speak. And I've made it like my own policy to only refer women of color to speaking engagements from now on because I kind of found like, yes, I can try to level the playing field in terms of like, Men and women in speaking, but the discrepancy with women of color on stages is something that is like so uh, tokenized, you know, Mm. in speaking and the best way that we can do that is by passing the baton and referring people for speaking engagements. Yes, I love that so much
0: and I think I definitely noticed in in a good way and a conflicting way too when you know Black Lives Matter really blew up last summer, I got so many awesome referrals and opportunities which is really exciting. But I also realized that, you know, there's all these different types, like not only is it black women, but you know, we need more Asian women and Hispanics and all these types of people need to be on the stage too. And so even as a woman of color, you can be an advocate for other women too. So I think that's a really great point that you mentioned because yeah, it's always like there's like one black speaker and then yeah. one Asian speaker. And it's like, this is some BS. It's not a formula. Like, can we just have yeah.
1: everyone on there like a rainbow? Absolutely. Like, oh my gosh. And, and the thing with speaking is that like audiences need to be able to see themselves in the speaker, you know, to yeah. be able to identify them. And so if it's just, we call it, you know, male, pale and stale Mm -hmm. (laughs) speakers up there, they're only appealing to like one side of the population. So it's doing the audience like a disservice too. and meeting planners and program directors know that now, like it is no longer acceptable. That's why, you know, I started Mic Drop Workshop is because like there's such a demand for women speakers now and not a lot of women are applying To speak. And so it's like, well, if I can give them the tools and the community and contracts and everything they need to do it, then, you know, let's get more women on stages.
0: Yeah, so good. And I really want to talk about how that led to writing a book because. I'm sure that's a common goal that people have is they're like, they want to be an author. They want to write a book one day. I know in my childhood, I wrote a lot of books, quote unquote. <laughs> um, I, <wrote laughs> I need like, to read these. Yeah. I wrote like a chapter and then I was like, yeah, I'm bored. I'm going to go play or color or something. But I do think that for creatives, it's definitely a really great goal. And I think it ties so well with speaking. So tell us a little bit about your journey to writing your book. Cause that is so huge. I
1: read it. It's awesome. Oh, thank you, and yeah, like you, I grew up wanting to write. My big break was getting into Chicken Soup for the Soul, which I loved. I, was, <laughs> I loved reading that in your great. book. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I literally, I thought I peaked for sure. Maybe I did, <laughs> but I, I always grew up loving writing. And then you know, I thought I was going to be a journalist, and then I started Headbands of Hope, and kind of always wondered where writing would come back into my life. You know, and then I. Got this itch to write a book, and so I, right when I graduated, or I was still in college, I wrote and self-published an awful book <laughs> because I was just like, "Oh, I'm going to write about like everything I learned in college." And uh, so I self-published a book, but I think like you know what it did for me was it like ripped this bandaid off, like even though it wasn't this like amazing, you know, manifesto it broke the seal of fear of like writing a book because i just did it you know and at first i was like embarrassed about it cuz you know you look up like my profile on like amazon on our goodreads and that like <laughs> book is always going to be there and i was like can i remove this and it still sells like 50 copies a month That's That's and awesome. i'm like why <laughs> who is buying the freshman fabulous but i wanted to like remove it but then you look at any big author and you go back down their rabbit hole they all had like that that self published or just like not so shiny beginning mm-hmm. and that's like where it really starts so my next book was chasing the bright side and that came out with harper collins november 2019 and it was a wild ride i loved the writing part got a little in my head with the marketing part but now we've sold 75,000 copies which is like insane And again, I saw the discrepancy walking into Barnes and Nobles and even like going to these like writers conferences and speaking, you know, at like book signings, a lot of men dominating the publishing industry, especially with traditional book deals and Mm -hmm. especially in like the business space. And so I started book pop workshop, which is my online course, like complimentary to Mike drop that helps women get traditional book deals because a lot of it, I felt like writing, chasing the bright side. I was also just trying to navigate and understand the publishing industry, like how do proposals work and literary agents and publishers and getting your advance money and royalties. Like when you're trying to absorb something and also make decisions about it at the same time is really hard, you know? Mm. So putting it all together as a source of information and like a guide is hopefully helpful for women out there looking to get publishing deals. Yeah,
0: definitely. And I, I, it's it's kind of like, it reminds me of like buying a house where it's like, there's all these things that you think, you know, but then you realize, I don't know anything. This is crazy. I'm like, what is escrow? Literally. (laughs) And I think like a lot of people probably feel that way, you know, about writing a book and it feels really intimidating. And I'm curious, like what was like one thing or a few things that while you're writing your book, completely took you off guard, surprised
1: you. You were like, "What the heck is this?" Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, recording my audiobook ooh was a moment that honestly probably led me to to start my podcast because I didn't realize how much I loved like the audio side. So, recording my audiobook Made it feel like a different art form in a way because sometimes you can write something and it feels different when you speak it. And so I was so grateful for the audio technicians that were like working in there because at the beginning they were like, hey, if you want to like re say something or totally do it in a different way, that's fine. You know, you don't have to stick word for word. And so to be able to add different twists and flair and Annunciations, or like it was really fun to do, and I didn't realize that I was gonna have so much fun recording the audiobook. And then Apple ended up picking it as the audiobook of the month in November. Oh my gosh, that is so cool! What a surprise! It was really fun.
0: Yeah. Oh, that is awesome. I want to end things off with something equally as fun is let us know about what it's like to live in an Airstream. Okay. We want to know,
1: spill the tea and through a pandemic, not even. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. So, um, my parents actually are entrepreneurs as well. And they, uh, sold their company, sold the house, sold everything they owned and moved into an RV. And I thought they were crazy. I was like, (laughs) what are you guys doing? Like, have a fun, like two months on the road. Seven years later, they're still in their RV, Wow, (laughs) which is crazy. But a few times I I went to visit them and, you know, I had speaking engagements and wherever they were parked. And so I could kind of get a peek inside their life and i realized i was like actually this is not bad like you get to travel you get to explore all these different places but at the same time you have like the comfort of your own home every night you know cuz at that point in my life i was traveling a lot for speaking engagements around like 50 times a year so i was getting kind of tired not of the speaking but of the travel and just like you know different pillowcases yeah. every night and like what does my rental car look like and just stuff like that. And so my husband and I, after we got married, we were like, Oh, wouldn't it be fun if we just tried this for, you know, a year. And at first we thought we were crazy. And then we just like pretend to go all in with it. We're like, okay, for the next month, let's pretend like we're gearing up and doing this. Like, what would we need to do? Okay. We, we would need to figure out how to like lease out our place. We need to figure out like, what do RVs cost? What is the budget of living on the road? You know, what, how do you even reserve a campsite? Like, what do you do? And little by little, something that seemed so big started to feel manageable because we did this mind shift of just like pretending to go all in. And then when you start to pretend, you start, it actually starts to happen. Mm. So then, Little by little, things started to happen. We partnered with Airstream and then we've been on the road for two years, currently taking a short break. And our Airstream is parked across the street of our house in Raleigh and we'll go back out again this summer. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that is so cool. And I was
0: actually going to ask, you know, how have you learned any lessons about entrepreneurship? But I feel like you kind of gave a really great, like almost like example that people can apply to your business of like, pretending to go all in and then you'll realize once you break things up, it's very doable to make that dream happen.
1: Honestly. Yeah. Like try it on for a week, see how it feels. Um, like that's how, you know, I started bright pages was I was like kind of going back and forth. And if there's one feeling I hate it's limbo. Like I hate being in gray area. Like even like, dating before my husband, I'd be like, yo, are we doing this or not? (laughs) Like what's, I go, I mean, what's good. Yeah. Like I'm not (laughs) playing games here, but so just try it on for a week, see how it feels. And either you'll learn what you don't want to do, which is still great information, or you'll learn what you do want to do. Ooh, that
0: is so good. And I'd love to just hear a little bit of like, what's it like to work in the Airstream? Like what is the juggling act? Like what is some parts of your routine while you're working on the road that like you've Had to maybe tweak a little bit. Like I'm kind of curious what it's like.
1: It can be frustrating (laughs) when you're unsure, like what service or Wi-Fi is going to be like. So we have Mm. something called Airstream Connected that basically, if we have AT and T signal, then we have Wi-Fi. But sometimes when you're off the grid, you know, or you just you won't have it. So. But something that I learned, you know, originally I was really frustrated and um, I I would still get frustrated with it. But like when we would have it, you make it matter. And when you don't, you let it go. And so we kind of ended up finally catching our groove, I think, in like year two of, okay, we're going to do like one week on, one week off. For one week, we're going to park somewhere that's near like a big city center. So we know we have service and let's batch all of our like video calls and internet, you know, things that we need to do during this week. And then the following week, we'll be off the grid. And if there's any like creative work I need to do, like write my book or come up with podcast episodes or things like that where I can be unplugged, let's batch it that week. And so learning how to batch your time And not try to force it was helpful. And then it also helped with setting boundaries, like coming out of the woods and hopping on a 15 minute call for someone to pick my brain that's not Mm. paying me. I'm sorry, just like wasn't gonna happen. Yeah. You know, because the effort that it took to do that. But also, it was a big disruption when I was, you know, at home. And so, learning, like using first using the Airstream almost as an excuse to set boundaries. And now it's just become a part of my life and my decision-making of like valuing my time, uh, was another part that I learned. Oh, that is so good.
0: I've seriously loved this conversation and I'm sure people are wondering where they can connect with you, see behind the scenes of your Airstream, listen to your podcast, all the things.
1: Absolutely. I would love that. Um, You can find me on Instagram at Jess underscore Ekstrom. And then um, I would love it if you guys wanted to hop on Bright Pages. We actually created um, a code for your listeners. You can use the code SHINE. At brightpages.com and try it out for a week. uh awesome! And yes, or actually, no, it's a month. Oh, yeah. so it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, a month is like
0: the perfect amount of time to start a habit. And I was one of the testers for Bright Pages. I'm so grateful for you. And I can <laughs> confirm, it is amazing because I suck at journaling, but it is a game changer. And I'm really excited. One day, I'm manifesting it right now. When I write my book, I'm gonna use Bright Pages to do it. Which is exciting. oh, good. <laughs> I'm so
1: glad we have a um book writing pathway. So hopefully. Yeah. That that'll be helpful. But speaking of, I want to ask you this um, while we're recording. So maybe you'll say yes more, but um, would you be open to hosting your own pathway on bright pages? Um, Of course I'm down. Let's do it. Oh, so now you got to do it. You're Woo-hoo! on record. <laughs>
0: Let's do it. This is awesome.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Natasha. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much to today's expert guests for joining us. If you want to connect with today's guests or check out any of the important links mentioned in the show, I've linked the details in today's show notes. Join the conversation at hashtag the shine online podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. If you love what you've heard today, we really appreciate it and it helps support our show. Remember, regardless of where you're at in your entrepreneurship journey, there's always room for your biz to shine. I'll see you next
1: time.